I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for the drive to work. Okay, so today's podcast was sponsored or was inspired, sorry, um, by a video. So um, Nate and Sean, you guys might know know them as the duo that did Walking the Plains, uh, and they now do a video series called Enter the Battlefield. So recently, at least from my perspective, they did one called Enter the Battlefield Alpha Playtesters, where they interviewed, I think they interviewed three people um, to talk a little bit about what it was like to playtest Alpha. Um, it turns out there's, I think, 11 playtesters that I know that went on to at least work on a set that in some level would end up in Magic. Um, I think there were some other playtesters more than that. I'm just going to talk about the, the ones that ended up designing uh, an early Magic set. Um, and anyway, I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about the Alpha playtesters. So today is all about, a little more in-depth about the Alpha playtesters. So I'll talk a little bit about the system and, and sort of who they were and how they did what they did and what sets they impacted on and we're going to talk through all that today. So more than you ever wanted to know about the Alpha Playtesters. Um, my caveat here is this is all information that I've gleaned over the years. So I, I first want to start with the, I believe everything I'm saying is true. Um, but I've noticed, for example, often when I write an article, or even this year at San Diego Comic-Con when I gave a speech, um, one of, the, one of the people, a guy named Chris Page, I'll talk about in a second, often will write to me and tell me that, oh, you were incorrect about this or that. So I'm doing the best I can to tell you the information, but uh, um, this is none of this that I experienced firsthand. So all of this is second and third hand information. Okay, so when Richard was making magic, he was working at the University of, or actually, he was, uh, he was, was he a graduate student or was he getting his doctorate? Anyway, he was at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, at least that's where he did a lot of the playtesting. Um, he must have been getting his doctorate there, is my guess. Anyway, um, what he did is, in order to test magic, he made use of a group of people that he had met through various places to playtest the game. And I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit today. Actually, let me first get into what, what he did, and then I'll introduce the people. So what he did was, he really wanted to test the concept of a trading card game. So what he did is he made a whole bunch of magic cards, and I think it was something like eight of every common and three of every uncommon and one of every rare, something like that. Like, he, he actually had rarities to them. I knew there was only one of every rare in existence. And then he went out to all the people that, that decided to play, his playtefters, and he gave them a collection of cards. And the idea was you could make whatever deck you wanted, but you only got these cards. And if you wanted other cards, you had to trade with other people. And that part of the game was the metagame of if you wanted to make a certain deck, you had to go get the cards to make the deck. Um, And so, because he really wanted to test sort of a larger ecosystem. Um, And remember, one of the things that Richard had always assumed was that people weren't going to buy a large number of cards. The thought process is he wanted to make sure it worked with a smaller number of cards, and if people bought a lot of number of cards, okay, that's the game's a big success. We'll solve that problem later. Um, so what he what he did is he made the the playtest cards were on cardboard. They're about an inch wide and two inches long. Um, literally printed on like um, when I say cardboard, I mean like a, a paper stock, like a thicker paper stock that you'd get at at a copy place. Um, it was on white, it was on white, the early playtest was on white or gray. Um, I, think, I think the earliest ones might have been on gray. And then 
Um, the first version just had words on it, and then very, very soon after, Richard started putting pictures on it. In fact, maybe they all had pictures. The only ones I've ever seen have had pictures on it. Maybe they all had pictures on it. And they were things that Richard had, um, and I think Scaff helped him. We'll get to Scaff in a second. Um, but they were just different pictures from different places. A lot of them were just cut out of magazines or comics. Um, there was a lot of pop culture references there. Um, and it was just sort of a little bit of an image to give you a little bit of flavor of what was going on. Um, one of the famous ones is the, uh, the original version of Healing Salve was just called Heal. And Scaff took a photocopy of his heel. And the, the, it was a picture of Scaff's heel. That's what was on H-E-A-L. But it was Scaff's H-E-E-L. Um, anyway, so Richard made the early versions and then he distributed them. And he didn't tell the playtesters anything about it. They didn't know what was in, like, trying to recreate the, re- the reality of sort of how the game would work. Nobody knew, all people knew is what their cards were, and then whatever cards they saw somebody else play. And so the idea was, you were experiencing the game in the way that Richard wanted you to, which is, you had to learn about it from other people. And that there, a lot of the, the fun stories about the playtesting was people slowly figuring out what was going on. Um, the other really cool thing about this, and in some ways Alpha was kind of like this as well, is um, nobody knew, especially, especially in the playtest, nobody knew strategies yet. There was no, like right now if you learn to play Magic, you can go read all sorts of articles and like, you know, <coughs> you can get from a zero strategy to a higher level strategy by reading and learning from people that have already sort of learned the basics of Magic. Um, but when the playtesters were playtesting, they didn't even know what all the cards were, so there was no... They were sort of figuring it out as they went along. And a lot, of, <coughs> a lot of early strategies got figured out by people who just tried things. Um, one of the stories that gets told uh, in the video is about how somebody was trying to get a Mox Emerald. And the person he traded it with just said, well, I guess just give me a forest. Oh, because the lands, by the way, uh, not only did you have to trade normal cards, you just couldn't get whatever land you wanted. If you needed a land, you had to trade for the land. Like, you had enough basic lands to make a deck, but you didn't... If you wanted to concentrate, you would need to trade your lands to get other lands. Um, anyway, so the... Uh, I forget who it was. Um, was it Don or Barry? Well, one of the ones... So in the, in the, in, in the interview, if you want to watch it, uh, it's called Enter the Battlefield, Alpha Playtafters. He interviews three people. Uh, Barry Reich, Don Felice, and Joel Mick. I'll talk about all of them today. Um, and one of them wasn't Joel. It was either Barry or um, Don talks about wanting to get a Mox Emerald, and the person say, well, just, just trade me a forest for it. Those, those are the same, right? Um, so there's a lot of learning to be had. You know, a lot, one of the things that I often talk about when playing Alpha is um, the internet was pretty young, and magic wasn't really widespread yet, and, like, there, A, you didn't know what all the cards were, and B, like, things that we now know definitively are bad people thought were good just because everybody was a beginner. And so the things that tricked beginners kind of tricked everybody because nobody really had learned the strategy yet. So things, like I, I joke a lot that like the Hive or Clockwork Beast, neither of which are particularly good cards, would have thought of in the early days as being very powerful because from an early player's perspective, they seem good. And, and comparative to other things that existed, like the Hive was the only thing that made a repeatable token. So, like, well, that's got to be good. I, I'm every, every turn I get a flying 1-1, one, one, you know, that, that seems like it's really good. Um, so, anyway, um, the playtesters definitely worked in a system in which they had these little cards. And one of the reasons Richard knew 
that the game he felt the game was going to be a success was the play testers just went ape for the game. They really, really enjoyed the game. Um, and I think Don in, in, the, uh, in the video talks a lot about how it was the most fun of Magic he's ever had. This sort of experimental, you don't know what's going on, everything's kind of crazy, you know, you have to trade for everything, just how much fun that was, because it was really a time of exploration. Um, nowadays, like, you guys see the cards before they even come out, so, like, there's no... In the early days of Magic, there was definitely this, I don't know the cards, and when I play people, I would see cards I'd never seen before. That sort of has gone away uh, within the age of the age of information. Okay, so let's talk about the actual play testers. So first we're going to talk about Barry Reich, uh, or Bit, as Richard would call it, as, as Barry's nickname. Um, Barry has the claim to fame of being the very first person to play Richard in a game of Magic. So Barry, I think they were neighbors, I and mean, they both went to school together. Um, and uh, Richard would also often come to Barry to play test things. Um, and when Barry tells the story about playing Matt, it wasn't like this was the one time Richard ever had him play test something. Richard all the time would say, do you want to play test something? And Barry goes, sure. So Barry was a, a frequent uh, play test partner for, for Richard, and they played a lot of different games. Um, and the story they tell of this game is that they start playing, Richard comes over, and they're in the lounge at school, I think. And uh, there, I think there aren't any windows where they're at. So they're playing and playing and playing. And when they finally stop, they realize, like, the sun had just come up. They'd been playing all night long. Um, and, you know, Barry says how, like, kind of, like, from the first game, they knew that it was something special. Just that they so immediately sort of got enthralled in playing that there was something really special there. Um, so one of the things that would happen is when it was clear that Magic looked like it was going to need expansions. Um, not This is before they knew how fast it was going to need expansions, but Richard was aware that eventually they would need expansions, so he asked his playtefters to work on sets that they could release. Barry ended up working by himself on a set called Spectral Chaos. Um, Spectral Chaos is best known um, when uh, Bill Rose and I and Mike Elliott made Invasion. I'll be getting to Bill in a second. He's one of the playtefters. Um, when we got to Invasion, uh, what we did is we started by looking at Barry's Spectral Chaos, which was a gold set. It was the first designed gold set. Not the first set with gold to come out. That would be Legends. Um, but it was the first set that ever, was ever designed with the idea of, of multiple colors in the spells. Uh, and Barry really was playing around with the idea of playing lots of colors and things that required more than one color. Um, I think Spectral Chaos was the first thing that had off-color activations as well as multicolor cards. Um, once again, this is the first that they got made that had them, not the first that they got released that had them. Um, the other thing that Barry did in his set is what we now refer to as the domain mechanic, where there are spells that say, okay, for each different kind of basic land you have in play, your spell goes up by one. So it's like do end damage, where it's equal to the number of unique basic lands you have in play, um, or different basic lands. Uh, I mean, the idea of how many different types, not, not, not unique ones, I guess. Um, so do you have a mountain in play? Do you have a forest in play? Do you have a plains in play? And you count those up. So you can do up to five damage, obviously. Um, we, in playtests, called it the berry mechanic because berry had made it. So if you ever heard of domain called as the berry mechanic, I've talked about that in articles, that's because it was made by Barry Reich. Um, so Barry, uh, I'm going to tell stories about people of what they did in Magic beyond being a playtester. Barry, I've met Barry once or twice, and I've definitely corresponded with him through email a few times. Um, 
Uh, he he has never he never came to work for Wizards, um, and like I said, he worked on Spectral Chaos, and we definitely used elements of Spectral Chaos in Invasion. Um, but that is the the most amount of influence. I mean, he obviously as a playtester had lots of influence. But uh, as far as one of the things I want to talk about is where how later on some of these people went to affect Magic. Uh, but Barry Barry worked on Spectral Chaos, and he was a playtester. Okay, so now let's get to the East Coast playtesters. So these were four people that Richard had met also through school, um, but a different... I think he met them... Uh, most of them were in some kind of math or science. Richard was studying combinatorics, which is math. Uh, Scaff was studying math. So the, the anyway, there were four people that he met through school. So Scaff Elias, Jim Lynn, Dave Petty, and Chris Page. Um, so Scaff Elias and Jim Lynn... Well, for, first off... Uh, the four of these guys got referred to as the East Coast Playtesters. Um, they went on to design Antiquities, Fawn Empires, Ice Age, and Alliances. Um, the first set they worked on was Ice Age. When Richard asked each of the groups to work on a set, the set they chose to work on was Ice Age. Um, but when Magic uh, started selling so well and they know they needed some faster sets, they went to them and they ended up doing Antiquities. So Antiquities is famous for a couple things. One, it's the first kind of mechanically themed set. Um, Arabian Nights was like a top-down set uh, that Richard had done. But the second set ever was Antiquities, and that was the first mechanically themed set. It also had the first story in it. Um, Like I I mentioned this in another podcast, uh, Richard had, like Alpha had mentioned the names Urza and Mishra, um, and and, uh, I think uh, Ashnod, right? Was Ashnod in in Alpha? Um, Anyway... Actually, I'm not sure if Ashton was in enough. Anyway, uh, at least Urza and Misha were mentioned. They took those names and did something with them and turned them into the Brothers of the Brothers War. Um, but that was the first real story they got told. Um, and there's a lot of innovations. These Coast Playtesters were very inventive. Uh, Ice Age is kind of famous for the number of cards that like show up as a one of an Ice Age that later become mechanics. Um, are, it's pretty big. Anyway, so... Uh, the East Coast Playtesters, the majority of them actually did come work at Wizards. So Scaffolize, Jim Lim, and Dave Petty all worked at Wizards at one point. Um, Chris Page did not. Um, Chris Page, I think what happened was when Magic kind of broke, they were in the middle of school and a bunch of them chose, instead of finishing school, I believe, to come work at Wizards. Chris chose to stay at school. Um, Dave Petty would move out and be in R&D for a year or two then he ended up going back to school, I believe. Um, I worked with Dave for just a little tiny sliver of time. Um, I think Dave came out in 94, and I started in 95, the end of 95, and he left not too long after I got there. He he and I overlapped by maybe six months, maybe. Um, So I I, I worked a little bit with Dave. I don't... My memories of Dave are are very uh, slight... Dave was very uh, analytical and very had a very like uh, a very mathematical mind and definitely sort of thought things. Um, one of the things I always joked about was when I got to R and D, I was a person who studied words in a in a team that had studied math. That most of the people I um, was working with were, were studied math or sciences, um, and so I, I definitely came from a very different mindset. Anyway, um, so Dave and I overlapped just a little bit. So Scaff and Jim, I worked with a lot. Um, so Scaff Elias, um, so have you ever heard of the stories of Scaff? Scaff was the one, his most famous stories, he used to sleep under his desk from time to time, that he'd work so late at night that Scaff had a sleeping bag that he'd sleep under his desk. Um, Scaff did all sorts of things uh, at Wizards. I mean, he, 
he was in R&D the whole time, but he was an executive, well, he was a vice president, might have been like a senior vice president, um, but he had his hands in a lot of things. For a period of time, he was the brand manager of Magic, um, both uh, Scaff and um, Joel Mickle, I get to, both were uh, brand manager for a while, so two different playtesters ended up being brand manager. Um, they were kind of in between brand managers, and Scaff filled the role while they were off looking for another brand manager. Um, Scaff also is famous for starting the Pro Tour. Scaff is the one that convinced them that, in fact, um, Scaff was a real big proprietor of um, events in general, and really, uh, for a while, I think he oversaw or, or heavily advised on events, and he was the person that convinced uh, Peter that there needed to be a Pro Tour, that part of make, if selling magic is making um, competitive play aspirational. And so Scaff, when I first got to Wizards, um, Scaff was in the early stages of setting up the Pro Tour, and I had had a lot of experience running tournaments. Because I had worked for Wizards since early 94, I wasn't allowed in tournaments because I was seeing upcoming magic cards before they were out, so I could write my articles and do my puzzles. Um, so I wasn't allowed to play in the tournament, so I would, I would help run the tournament. So I had done a lot of judging. So when I found out they were doing the Pro Tour, I asked Scaff if I could be involved. And so um, technically, for a bunch of years, I was the liaison to the Pro Tour from, from Wizards. Uh, sorry, from R&D. Uh, and so I, it's, I worked a lot closely with Scaff. Um, Scaff is a lot of fun. Scaff definitely is. He is quirky. Um, one of the stories, a bunch of, there's a lot of Scaff stories. Um, I always said that if I ever... Um, that you have ever left Wizards and went back to Hollywood that I think that's happening but uh, uh, I always wanted to uh, thought it'd be fun to, to make a sitcom about a game company um, and Scaff is one of those people that just is begging to be uh, turned into a character um, anyway um, so Scaff is uh, famous for a bunch of things um, he he definitely was very playful. He and Richard were very, very playful. Um, like, I remember for his birthday one year, Scaff got Richard stilts, and Richard occasionally would walk around uh, in, in the office with these stilts on. Um, and anyway, uh, Scaff was famous for, he was willing to eat any leftovers that were in any state of being. And like, um, like I remember one time there was a pizza that it had like it had been in the fridge long enough that there were had, there was like, you know, mold on it. And so Scaff like scraped off the mold and then nuked it and then ate it. Um, and then he got a little bit sick. And so the next day he nuked it longer and then ate more. <laughs> Cause he was, he wasn't gonna let the pizza win. I think that's what he said. Um, anyway, so Scaff, uh, had a lot of different roles, oversaw a lot of different things. Um, he and I had worked together on a bunch of different projects. Um, he and I were on fifth edition together. Um, and we did a few other, he and I were on a, at one point we made a Dungeon Dragons trading card game that never got made. He and I were on the team for that. Um, but anyway, Scaff was a lot of fun. Um, oh, Scaff was also famous for wearing shorts regardless of what the weather was. Like I remember PT1, I did a podcast on PT1, talking about like we're walking to the event from the hotel, which was like a decent little walk. And we're going through an absolute blizzard. In fact, uh, the Pro Tour got delayed because of the blizzard. And we're walking through a blizzard, and Scaff is walking in shorts in a blizzard in January. Anyway, that, that is very much a Scaff thing. So Jim Lynn, um, 
So Jim, uh, for a while, uh, I mean, he, Jim worked in R&D. He worked his way up. He was the VP of R&D for a while. Um, and Jim, I worked, a, I worked a little with Jim. I worked more with Scaff than I worked with Jim. Um, Jim definitely was uh, super analytical as well. Um, but he had, a, he had a general good sense. I mean, all these guys were gamers. All of them, like, they started, the reason they were playtesters in the first place was they loved gaming. Uh, and then um, they got to a company, and R&D really sort of became the, the heart of the company, I think because all the people in R&D were really worthy audience. Like, these are all people that would play Magic if they were not working at the company. So it was a very good means by which to sort of capture what our audience wanted, because R&D was not the totality of the audience, obviously. We, I, I spent a lot of time sort of learning about who are the players that aren't quite who R&D are. Um, but R&D very much was an audience and really um, championed the game early on. And um, they were definitely the people who sort of uh, fought to sort of make sure that the spirit of what Magic was stayed alive. And they did a good job of it. Um, and Jim, for a long time, when I first got there, what happened was all the original playtesters went to work on other projects. And so... Um, uh, they hired me and Bill Rose, who we'll get to in a second, and um, Mike Elliott and William Jockish and later Henry Stern to sort of oversee Magic. And then all of them were working on other projects because Richard was off making other trading card games. In fact, for a while, Jim was in charge of all the non-Magic games. Um, Scaff had always kept his, his toes in Magic, um, but was working on bigger projects. Uh, he didn't work on individual sets all that often. Most of the, the rest of the ones they'd brought on, we had done most of the work at that point on the sets. Um, but from time to time, you know, we'd bring in Richard or Scaff or Charlie or whatever. Uh, okay, uh, that's the East Coast Playstafters. Next is the Bridge Club. So uh, the next batch of people Richard met through a Bridge Club that he played. Richard really liked playing Bridge. Uh, so he met Bill Rose, Joel Mick, Charlie Catino, Don Felice, Howard Collenberg, and Elliot Siegel, which are the six people that made Mirage and Visions. Um, it was called Menagerie, I think was its playtest name. Um, but they made Mirage and Visions, and, um, and they did the story, they did all the mechanics. Um, and so those were the people responsible. Uh, those are people... That, so Richard had... His playtesting were not all from the same place. And I think the playtesters got to know each other because they all... Once they started participating and had to start trading, it kind of forced them to start to get to know one another. Um, so all these people started to learn about each other. But early on, uh, Richard met Barry in a se- uh, sort of separately, had met the East Coast Playtesters separately, and met the Bridge Club separately, I believe, that they were di- different pockets of people. And that's why those different pockets made their own sets when Richard wanted them to make sets. Okay, Bill Rose is probably the most famous of all the Playtesters as far as me mentioning his name in this podcast. So Bill gets hired the exact same time. Bill started uh, three weeks Bill and I both started October of 1995. Bill started early October. I started late October. Um, but uh, So Bill has gone on to be the VP of R&D. In fact, Bill uh, originally was the... Before there was a head designer, um, the, the, there was a job in which head designer and head developer were all one role, and Bill had that role. Uh, and then he became the VP of R&D, which he still is not the VP of R&D. Um, so Bill is somebody, of everybody on this list, uh, of all the people I've worked with the most, uh, Bill is the person I've worked with the most. I've worked with him for coming up on 23 years. Um, and so 
Bill, I think, before um, he was running some, uh, he was running some a college lab, I think. Um, he was doing finances, I think is what Bill was doing before he came here. Bill came out a little bit later because he had a job. And so he eventually, the rest of them had come out in, um, most of them had come out in 94. Charlie came out early 95. We'll get to Charlie in a second. And then Bill came out late 95. Um, but Bill and Charlie, of the original playtesters, the only two people that still work at Wizards, that have worked at Wizards, are uh, Bill Rose and Charlie Catino. I'll get to Charlie soon. Um, anyway, uh, Bill slowly worked his way up. Um, like I said, he's one of the major players now. And if I had a list, like, the, you know, top five people that have the largest influence on Magic, Bill's definitely in my top five. Um, Bill wrote the, uh, or Bill and Joel together wrote the sixth edition rules. And... Um, Bill led all sorts of... He led the design for Mirage and Visions. He led Invasion. He led Shards of Alara. Um, he led Planar Chaos. He did a bunch of different sets. So, And Bill is one of the handful of people that have both led design teams and led development teams. Uh, Bill has done both. Um, and he was a, a head designer. He was a VP. Um, so Bill has been super, super involved in Magic. For, and Bill, in fact... Uh, Charlie doesn't work actively on magic, but Bill does. And so Bill has been the person who continuously, if you think I was the person who worked continuously on magic the longest, you're wrong, because Bill has worked longer than me, because he started three weeks before me, and he was the playtafter. So um, Bill's been playing magic longer than the game has been out. So Bill, Bill is, there's probably no person who's been more involved in magic for longer than Bill. Next, Joel Mick. Uh, Bill and Joel co-designed Mirage together. Um, Joel worked in R&D for a while. Before Bill was the head designer, Joel was the head designer. Um, and then Joel went on to be the brand manager of Magic, which he served for a bunch of years. Um, Joel is responsible for things like rarity symbols and um, premium cards, foil cards, um, and collector numbers. That's also... Um, Joel, along with Bill, also did the 6th edition rules, helped clean up the rules. Um, Joel is one of the people that gets interviewed... So Barry gets interviewed, Joel gets interviewed, and Don, he'll get to it in a second, all get interviewed in the video I'm talking about, Enter the Battlefield, um, Alpha Playtester. So you get a chance to meet Joel in the video. Um, Joel is a lot of fun. I, I, I interacted a, a bunch with Joel, A, because he was in design, that he ran design for a while, and then even when he was um, Magic Brand Manager, I interacted with Joel quite a bit. Um, Joel, nobody I'm talking about, everybody I'm talking about who worked at Wizards is no longer there with the exception of uh, Bill and Charlie. Um, Joel left many years ago. Um, but Joel, like I said, definitely had an influence on Magic. Uh, collector numbers and premium cards and um, rarity symbols and stuff. That a, lo a lot of that, uh, things that happened during Urza Saga-ish time, that was, that was uh, Joel's doing. Next is Charlie Catino. So Charlie has been at Wizards. Uh, he has the record of being the person longest at Wizards. He started in February of 2000. I'm sorry, it's February of 1995. Uh, as far as people who have been at Wizards continuously the longest, there are some people who came to Wizards from TSR that had been at TSR longer than Charlie had been at Wizards. So if you count their TSR time, um, have been continuously working longer than Charlie. But Charlie's the longest person to work at Wizards continuously. On the books, I'm the longest because part of my... When I got hired, I asked for a start date of January. So on the record, on the books, I'm technically the longest, but really I'm not because I started in October. So Charlie has the actual... I, I have like the record on paper and Charlie has the actual record. Um, 
Charlie, uh, one of Charlie's famous things is, I think they misspelled his name in the Alpha Rulebook. And so from then on, there's a running joke that Charlie's name is always misspelled, but always misspelled differently in every product he works on. So if you, ever, if you go look through Magic, you'll see also, you know, Charlie Cantina, Charlie Con... Con- um, they're always... Whenever they can, they make it relevant to the product it's on, but a lot of times it's just different misspellings and things. Um, Charlie now works... We make a game called Duel Masters. Um, oh, we used to sell Pokemon, and then when the Pokemon license left, um, we decided that we would make a game to go to China... Uh, not China, to Japan first, a kid's trading card game, with the idea that eventually we'd bring it to the U.S., um, we ended up being very successful about having the game in Japan, not so successful bringing it back to the U.S. We tried twice. Neither time was a great success. Um, but the game in Japan is a huge success. Uh, and so Charlie oversees the Duel Master team. Um, every once in a blue moon, Charlie will peek his head in on Magic, but he hasn't really worked on Magic in a while. Um, Charlie was on the Tempest Design team when I, my first ever team, um, I could pick. So Richard was on it, uh, Mike Elliott was on it, and Charlie was on it. So... Uh, I've worked with Charlie on a bunch of things. In fact, I've worked on Charlie on some stuff that isn't magic. Most recently, my project with Charlie is uh, he asked me to work on the um, uh, Transformers trading card game. Um, We hadn't really made a trading card game in a while, and there weren't a lot of people in the building that were used to making a brand new trading card game. So Charlie asked if if it would mind if I could join in. And so I... um, There was a team of us. It wasn't just me. Um, But anyway, I joined in, and... and, um, I did, mo- I did a lot of the early work. There was later work after I left. So I'm, um, there's a lot of sort of, I'm, a lot of the foundation, I helped, I helped build some of the foundation, but the, the main game itself, other people worked on that. Um, but anyway, Charlie oversaw that. So I got to work with Charlie, my recent working with Charlie. Um, Charlie's a lot of fun. Uh, Charlie is um, one of the people in the playtest that was known for making really crazy decks. Like he had one deck where um, what he would do is, he would play with you. He had a lot of swords to plowshares, and he would keep removing your things from the game. And then, what would he do? He'd do something. Was it time twister? Something where he'd shuffle things back in. So he would keep going through the deck again and again. But each time he'd remove stuff with his swords to plowshares. So eventually, he just your deck would evaporate. You'd have no deck left. Um, oh, maybe maybe he did share his odds. Maybe he did share his odds. Maybe he kept going into sub-games and exiling your cards so they would disappear from the main game. Anyway, he ended up making this thing that would beat you by just making your deck disappear. Um, and, and Charlie would def- definitely loves doing the goofy fun things. And Charlie's always been a big champion of, of bad cards. Um, in fact, um, what's it called? Lion's Eye Diamond Charlie designed because he thought he was making a bad Lotus. Um, I convinced him to originally tap for colorless, and I convinced him to be three of any color. I said, if it's going to be a bad lotus, it should at least be a lotus. Went on to be an amazing card. But anyway, Charlie did try to make it bad. Um, Next, we have Don Felice. So um, Don is one of the other people interviewed in the video. Um, Don never worked for Wizards. Um, My favorite story of Don is um, Don wanted to get his name in the set, and so they made a card called Felden's Ice Cane. Uh, Felden's Ice or Felden and Ice are anagrammed to Don Felice. Uh, and then when they made it, they, it didn't get drawn out of ice. I guess the artist didn't put ice in it or didn't make it out of ice. So it ended up just be called Felden's Cane. So later they made Delif's Cone, uh, which is an anagram for Don Felice. So um, I've met Don a bunch of times. Um, Don, in the early days, came out to Wizards a few times, and I met him in some events. Um, 
fun person to talk to. Uh, and um, but Don Don never actually worked at Wizards. Um, Howard Collenberg, I know very little about Howard. I met him one time at an event early, early in Magic. Um, and then uh, the final person is Elliot Siegel. So the only story I know Elliot, I've met, I, I, both Howard and Elliot I think I met once at an event. Um, I know of them more than I know them. Like Don, I've actually interacted with a bunch of times. Um, all the East Coast play drafters I either worked with or something like Chris, who I've spent a decent amount of time talking with. Um, and even Barry, I've, I've had some longer conversations with. Um, both Howard and Elliot, I, I, I met, how you doing, nice to meet you. Um, so Elliot's story, the one story I know about Elliot is um, that Elliot wanted a nickname. And uh, they were joking about how that, you know, how, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Perry, the football player, the refrigerator Perry. What's his first name? Uh, and he wanted a nickname like the refrigerator Perry. Uh, and so I don't know if it was Bill or somebody said, okay, Mr. Toilet. And so that was his nickname, and they used to call him Mr. Toilet. So in Mirage, there's a, there's a character named Talimtor. Uh, and Talimtor is an anagram of Mr. Toilet. So that is Elliot's, uh, um, how Elliot shows up in magic as, as an anagram, uh, Mr. Toilet, Talimtor. Uh, anyway, that, my friend, I'm almost to work, that is uh, the, all the alpha playtesters that I, um, that, I mean, there are other people... Uh, these are not the only people that ever playtested magic. I'm sure there are other people, but these are all the people that went on to do specific magic things, meaning uh, they all went on to make sets that either in whole or in part ended up uh, making, making it uh, to print. So, so Barry Reich, Scaff Elias, Jim Lynn, Dave Petty, Chris Page, Bill Rose, Joel Mick, Charlie Catino, Don Feliste, Howard Collenberg, Elliot Siegel. Those are the alpha play tester. So I hope today fills you a little bit in. Um, when I saw that video, I liked the video, and like, I would recommend going see it, Enter the Battlefield Alpha Play Tefters. Um, but it just, I mean, part of it is the video can only be so long, and so you couldn't interview everybody. But uh, when I saw that, I, I was, it was fun to see, to see Barry and Don and Joel get interviewed, but I'm like, oh, there's so many more play, alpha play tefters. Um, so anyway, I hope today filled that in a little bit and maybe encouraged you to see the video. Um, and told you a little bit more about the early days of magic and how how uh, it got play tested. But um, I'm now driving into the parking lot. So um, once again, I hope you guys enjoy. I love I love doing podcasts all about the history of magic. Um, this is the history of magic that predates me. Uh, I, I was I've been around a long time, but not since the very beginning. So it's fun to sort of share with you guys some super early magic history. Anyway, I'm now parked, so we all know what that means this is the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. I'll see you soon.